Welcome again to another episode of the Southwest Climate Podcast. This is the end of April edition. This will probably come out though in the beginning of, of May. April Fools. <laughs> April Fools was a while ago. Uh, we were supposed to come back by April Fools. And, and that's uh, Mike Crimmins. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great, Zach. How's, how's the sabbatical treating you? Oh, it's just, it's wonderful. It is. <laughs> All I do is podcast. We feel fortunate. I, <laughs> we can tap into your uh, your deep knowledge of the Southwest weather. I'm living it, man. That's and right. I have to congratulate you. This is episode number 45. I think it is, actually. Longest running podcast focused on climate in the Southwest. So Somebody's going to count those up and it'll turn out it won't be 45. <laughs> I think it's been nearly a month and a half since you and I, you and I got together. So it's, it's nice to be back in the same room. Yeah, it's good to catch up with you. And in March, we were trying to look forward to see what would happen in April. And now we know. We're going to take a look back at the entire winter season, do a little recap of that, talk about the climatological features of this upcoming sort of fire and brimstone season. Ooh, yeah. And maybe uh, maybe look forward, although at this point in the year, it's, it's, it's more of a black box than at any other time during the year. So, so many fronts. You'll do your best version of creative commentary. Try to bait me into making a forecast <laughs> as usual. You're probably as uh, skillful uh, in your predictions as the You know, the problem the models. Is, is that these are all recorded and somebody could actually go back and do a skill score on both of our forecasts. What yeah. do you think you'd, you'd turn out? Oh, it'd be bad. It'd be bad. I don't okay, think so, I'd be, I don't think I'd be climatology. So we just pretty much discredited what we're about ready to say. So in other words, like <laughs> flip a coin. First time. It's be, you're better <laughs> off flipping a coin than listening to Mike Crimmins. <laughs> got that on a t-shirt. No, but we've, we've got some things to say. So we'll, we'll, we'll try to say it. The winter, for the most part in the Southern part of Arizona, it was defined by pretty much a 30 day period. A Southern third of Arizona, for the most part, uh, if you look back to the end of, of October, so November, December, January, February, March, and April, the southern third of Arizona was below average, where the rest of the Southwest basically was above average. Yeah. California received some of its wettest conditions on record, rivaling, at least in the snowpack, rivaling the 82, 83, and the 97, 98. But it missed southern Arizona. That's actually quite quite depressing. I keep trying to make sense of this because I, I think if you go back through the, the podcast, I was kind of glowing. We had a couple months there where I was I was fairly cheery and happy because of the the gray weather and the fairly frequent precip we were seeing, you know, in December and January. I must have become delusional in February because I kept kind of hanging in there. We had that really warm spell in February. We did pick up an event, and this is again Southern Arizona, in later in February, and then <laughs> kind of Mar March turned into summer, and then we've just been kind of off to the races ever since. It really is been an active winter, much, much more active from a weather pattern standpoint than the kinds of weather patterns we saw the previous winter. We actually saw a lot more blocking ridges and quiescent but warm periods there. We've actually seen quite a bit of weather. It's just that the southern part of Arizona has not gotten the precip out of them. The northern part of the state has continued to pick up very active weather pattern precip all the way along, even up until just even the last couple of days. Right, it's really a tale of two parts of the state. Exactly. I mean, if you look yep. at if you look at Tucson, for example, since October one, we've measured about three and a third inches. That's about two inches below average. Most of that came 
uh, within a 30 day period between mid December and, and mid January, which is quite it, odd. The October, November period was dry. Uh, only a handful of October was very dry, very, very warm. November was pretty quiet. Uh, one or two events and we were below average or from the water year, October 1st through the beginning of December, we were not hanging in there. And then it wasn't until December in January, we really picked up speed quite a bit. And I actually caught up to the water year total, just about hit average by the middle of January. And then since then, the southern part of the state has gotten left out of the precip and we've really trailed behind. So the water year to date, we're now looking at like an, we're an inch and a half below average now, which is pretty sizable deficit, even after having that pretty good midwinter rally with precip. The slowdown in February and March, those are two months that we should still continue mm -hmm. to see precip accumulate in Southern Arizona, at least climatologically speaking. We didn't get it. At least at the Tucson International Airport, March only had one one event. And I don't think that was experienced area-wide. No. And, and the, the events that did actually put down you know, a trace to some drops at the airport were these really quick moving trailing cold fronts. We've had a lot of them come through. And those were the last couple of ones that actually had this one tiny band of showers that literally you could watch it move across on radar. And if you were underneath it and you got some out of it, that was your precip for that event. The break point across the state now climatologically for who's above average versus below average is right about Phoenix. Yep. And so north of Phoenix, and it's really going to be elevation at that point where you go up in elevation, you really did start to see some of that, that precip pick up. But it's also interesting if you go off to the far western deserts like southern Mojave County and even La Paz County, they've done quite well. They've Again, that's a dry part of the state, but they've actually had above average precip for the winter. Yeah, and I believe so those far. were in part fueled by a couple atmospheric rivers that were sort of moving in that direction from southwest to northeast. There's these low elevation stations out towards the Colorado River that have gotten precip in the last couple of events where we haven't gotten it. So it's not just an elevational gradient. But, you know, there was events in late February and even again in April where the far western deserts got precip. And again, it was more proximity of the store track being north of being north of Phoenix, anywhere sort of north of it, both west and to the east, you had a better chance of seeing some of that precip with these with the storm track that continues. So another interesting feature that I that I've seen in sort of the southern part of Arizona, which is the precipitation events have been pretty weak. Like, yeah, it's not that we've received fewer storms. It's That's that right. We've received right around the, the the average number of of rainy days, but the intensity during those days have been have been below average. Yeah, just to your point, we've had twenty eight rain days in uh, Tucson, and for the entire October through end of May period, we normally see about twenty six. So we're actually above average on the number of times it rained. But as you just said, is that the amount of rain coming in those events is actually below average. So it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition of those two metrics. In Flagstaff, it's running at two or three inches above average. They tend to get on average about 13 inches of rain. And, and right now we're at close to 16. And they've gotten uh, almost 100 inches of snow, which is a little over 110% of their average wintertime snow. So yeah, two parts of uh, of Arizona, mm -hmm. southern part dry, <coughs> northern part wet. You know, New Mexico has fared for the most part above average since since the water year began. So, you know, again, we we've been we've been left out here. Yeah, the epicenter for, you know, the short-term drought conditions returning is really Tucson and it kind of rings out from that to Cochise County and Pima County and a little bit of Pinal. 
but yeah, like you said, New Mexico, not too shabby. Far sort of southeast part of the state has had a fairly dry time of it, but much of the rest of New Mexico has gotten fairly frequent, kind of normalish precip from October till now. So another interesting feature that I think uh, we should talk about for the winter, particularly the, the recent months, has been the heat. March came in at the warmest March on record. For Tucson, right? For Tucson. Mm-hmm. That heat has been regional. Like it's yeah. been above average across the West. This I found astonishing. March actually had its average high temperatures nine degrees Fahrenheit above average. That's a lot. That's, 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 not, that's not edging out an old record. Obviously, there's some relationship here between the dry conditions. You know, we weren't getting storms in. Right. Typically, those storms would come in. They would, they, they'd come in from the, the northwest, bring, yeah. bring cool conditions. We didn't see that. And consequently, it's not surprising that it's been warmer than average. But nine degrees Fahrenheit is... is it's impressive. And it, how do you get to nine degrees? It, it's not two or three just epic record-shattering days balanced out by a, a bunch of sort of near average days. It was a it was a run. It was a two-week run of either record-breaking temps or near record-breaking temps to get you to that particular level. And that was in mid-March. That was between, I think, the 8th and then in the 20th. You know, typically when you'd see that, you just expect to see a very strong northward displaced ridge. So a ridge of high pressure system probably even anchored above us. It's bringing under, in warmer air from yeah, the, right. so the south. Yeah, right. So you're in that sort of southwest flow. It's doing two things, right? It's bringing in warmer air, but it's also high deflecting. Pressure. Yeah, so it's the deflection, so you're not getting the weather systems and the precipitation part of it and the clouds. It's also you know, potentially the high pressure with the subsidence and increasing the surface temperatures, you know, sort of the atmospheric temperature profile, and then just the advection of warm air into it. But it wasn't terribly striking. We just had a, a bunch of kind of strange, very shallow ridges park over us and kind of move quickly through there under some really sort of strong zonal flow. So it was surprising to go back and look at the weather maps and say, huh, that's that's what gave us that. But it certainly did. A couple of days where there was a high pressure system sort of directly overhead. A lot of days where we were just under really fast westerly flow, but in the very warm southern part, just south of the jet stream. So the jet stream was more north. And it yeah, was, absolutely. Because yeah, the Pacific Northwest very... and northern parts of California and Oregon and you know even into the interior received quite a bit of precipitation. The jet was north of us, and on that very fast jet was pummeling northern California, and we were in the you know just sort of the warm, dry air mass south of that particular jet stream. And it was just enough to be able to be very persistent and very, very warm, giving us those, those record high temperatures. At least if you were to think about what the fire impacts might be, this sort of doesn't bode well. Foreboding. It's foreboding. You don't want all of that effort in putting down precip in December and January, and maybe a little bit in February, to just get kind of eaten up and spit out in March. And I think we certainly had a lot of that happen in southern Arizona with the temps and then the lack of precipitation. I do think that it has exacerbated fire danger. I mean, it certainly dried stuff out in the short term. We did see, if you look at some of the greenness metrics from remote sensing, we saw all that nice precip come down in the midwinter and then being followed by that warm up in, in February and again in March. We had a lot of green up in vegetation, really pushed, I think, probably in a lot of respects, an early sort of spring signal, depending on the kind of vegetation you're talking about. Subsequently, especially with grasses and annuals, that stuff has already senesced and dried out and gone back to its spring senescent state, which means it's ready to burn now, which I think is 
clearly why we're seeing real um, concern with fire risk across the state and active fires. The decent monsoon probably doesn't help that, right? Because it would have laid down a, a solid foundation for which there'd be a little bit more short, um, finer fuels. We're dancing around the actual active fire of the sawmill fire in southern Arizona, 30, 40 miles south of where we're sitting right now. And that particular area did see a really wet, productive monsoon season. All that grass and growth has led to really good fine fuel loadings, and now it's ready to go. And it's definitely, definitely going. So before moving on to fire, I, I do want to just uh, finish talking about the the retrospective look at the winter. Now, we we did have sort of a week La Nina. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you think that there is any sort of signal uh, within the, the pattern here in the in, in the West related to that that La Nina. I mean, it was a weak La Nina, so yeah. one wouldn't necessarily think that we would see it. But, you know, we, we did have some superlatives with precipitation in uh, California, which quite frankly go against um, what we would have otherwise thought with a with the La Nina. I know. And, you know, it's interesting now that, you know, for Southern Arizona, we might end up falling right back into our correlation for, you know, we, we kind of said, oh, it's going to be a dry winter. And, you know, I'm glad we're trying to be more nuanced in our sort of exploration and descriptions of the winters now, because October through March, which is what we've done in the past, October through March, total precipitation and correlated that with the La Nina or, or an El Nino with, with an ENSO index. This is going to be one of those dots that's going to fall below the average. Right. The point is, is that we did have precip in there. It was it came in sort of a complex ma manner. The February March period dried out. Did that have anything to do with La Nina? Uh, I don't know. But wouldn't you have also expected it to be slightly dry and or, or, or tilting dry in southern New Mexico yeah. as well? And it, <laughs> it, would have, it would have, and it didn't. I know. I mean, I think, I think it's a little look, more happenstance. You than have to look at more of a sort of spatial coherence. Yeah. To I agree. think about it, its it, relationship to El Nino. I mean, we. Yep, I, mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, so, there's this. There's, thank you for backing me out of that corner. You know, a third of of, of Arizona. I mean, it's it, it is odd that Arizona and not New Mexico. Yeah, it's a tiny little bullseye around the three counties in southern Arizona. So, did La Nina cause this? I don't think so. I think it was just the approach of a lot of these storms was just not favorable for southern Arizona. And it was favorable for everybody else as far as the access to the moisture and, you know, sort of the timing of those events as they sort of came through. What about the chatter that has been about the, the atmospheric rivers and the, and the frequency and the, and the intensity of those? There has been a lot of chatter about it. And I think we talked about it in a previous podcast. You kind of brought up some of the statistics that this appears to be a year where the frequency is much higher. I think that some of the things that were at play were... Not well. They aren't completely understood for sure, but Madden Julian oscillation was fairly active at certain parts of the winter, and I think was is going to be and we know is a culprit. Weak La Nina events and neutral Enso is favorable for these Madden Julian oscillations, and and I do believe it's also favorable for these atmospheric river type situations as well, because you're you have some dynamics to work with within the easterlies to be able to sort of move some of these wave systems across. And also in the far western Pacific, there's a tons of, of moisture to deal with, which these really long fetches, uh, atmospheric rivers were able to sort of tap into. And it was just over like the last week too, I was reading a couple different blogs, but there's this amazing 
uh, wall of water that came in across California again that had its origination all the way back in the Philippines. It was, and you could look at the water vapor imagery, and it was like three thousand miles long. It was, and it was really wide too, so it didn't have the the hallmarks of an atmospheric river. It just had this giant subtropical plume that extended all the way across the Pacific Ocean. So, I think there's still a lot of moving parts we don't really understand. And a lot of the chatter for this winter, too, is a lot of interest in what's been going on in the Arctic and its interactions with both Madden-Julian oscillation and sudden stratospheric warming events, whether they're occurring more frequently or less frequently than we'd expect to see and using those as forecast tools, and then how that has been interacting with the weather pattern across the entire globe. No real definitive saying this was the culprit. It seems to be, again, like kind of a mishmash of a lot of different really active and interesting weather patterns continuing. And they they continue to this day. And it looks like in the next two weeks, the weather pattern continues. I think largely Southern Arizona is probably out of play from here on out. I just think we're done. But it does look like, and you can see this in the two-week forecast, the upper basin states are still under an above-average precip forecast even for the next two weeks. It's not quite Miracle May kind of levels, but it's worth watching. I don't see that as exactly what's going to be happening, but it's still kind of interesting to, to yeah, see that we might continue to pick up precip in the upper basin. It's not going to solve the issue of the cratering snowpack, but it's still Well, there's still quite a bit of snowpack around the West. The Sierras are way above average right now. Snowpacks in, in the upper Colorado River Basin are, some of the lower elevations are near uh, below average near, near zero. And, and probably the ones at higher elevations are, are above average. And I, that probably reflects the, the, the warm temperatures it's still been above, above, uh, or, um, below freezing at higher elevations, So it hasn't been able to eat through That's right. the snow as much, but the lower elevations ones are, are, are getting, um, uh, melted out pretty quickly. Yeah. So now we're transitioning into the May and June season, the, the pre, the pre monsoon season, which, Maybe we should talk a little bit about the climatological features. So I was, I was trying to think about what's interesting about this upcoming two months. For me, it's characterized by pretty fierce wind. Yeah. Temperature starts increasing. Or, well, it's been increasing, but it ramps up to its peak and close to the end of, end of June before the monsoon season mm-hmm. comes in. Fires become the main impact. It's also the point in time, I think, when... We, at least from a forecast perspective, we know very, very little about what the future seasonal climate's going to be like, particularly the monsoon, because that's a, that's a hard thing to forecast. But even also looking forward into, you know, what this, what, what Enso is going to do, what El Nino and La Nina are going to do. That's a really good point. I really thought about that way of the, you're completely sure of how miserable the next six to eight weeks will be. But at the same time, you have complete uncertainty about what's going to follow. Right, it's it, you're right. It's kind of a weird. A, a well, weird, we know it's going to be hot and dry. You know that it will break in sometime in July, but you don't have any idea how it's going to play out. The El Nino forecast. This is exactly the point in time where you do either you're getting some insight about what's going to potentially be at play for the following winter, just based on our El Nino forecast, or La Nina. But the winds. So yeah. you know, this is the time. I mean, the fire danger <laughs> is, is is the highest in part because this is when there's there's very windy conditions. We have another red flag warning oh, man, today. We've had a run of them, yeah. So thinking about the climatological feature here. Yeah. Yes. The wind is a prominent element of you know May and June. Right. Right. 
So let's talk a little bit about why that's the case. The, the wind is a response to a gradient of atmospheric pressure. And the gradient of atmospheric pressure is largely because it's warm south of here in response to the sun angle increasing. And, you know, that's actually what's going to bring us our monsoon ridge, right? So that monsoon ridge is starting to, you know, bubble and broil south of here. And we'll start to try to advance north. There's also, though, winter is still... Winter's still happening Winter's north. still happening north of us, right? If you kind of now visually cut the atmosphere as a cross-section and you think about with colder air, the atmosphere is compressed. It takes up less space because it's, it's colder. And as you go south, it's warmer, so it takes up more space. So the atmosphere is actually thicker south of us. So it's just like a topographic map. And so the atmosphere with the same amount of mass is actually taking up more space south of here and it's less north of here, right? Okay, so just like we were just saying, there's a slope that topographically, that higher pressure or that thicker atmosphere wants to flow north towards the colder atmosphere, which would be upper level, lower low pressure system. And the jet stream responds in concert. That battle between sort of the warm air to the south and the cold air to the to the north is what's going to drive both the upper level winds and the surface winds. And the steeper that gradient is, is going to drive then faster winds uh, that will be both at the upper levels and the lower levels. And so this time of year, we often will have very cold air trying to kind of plow south out of those low pressure systems. And it'll collide with this warm air that's not too far um, south of us here. And so when we get those really sharp gradients, we end up having these really, really strong winds. So does that sort of smooth itself out come mid-June or when does, exactly. when do these, when do the fire, like the red flag, the, the really intense yeah. days of, uh, of wind end? They cease as the monsoon ridge pushes into the area. And so we can actually have these really, really strong winds right to the last week of June. And we've seen that in past. And some of the really busy fire seasons, you'll still, these, still see these very dry, windy, low pressure systems still kind of barreling out of the Northwest and across the Southwest. They do nothing but create wind, no clouds, no nothing, just create wind. And it's not until that monsoon ridge can actually muscle its way in and ridge across the entire Southwest where that storm track is far South and the jet is much further North that you'll continue to see these red flag type events. And it's as soon as you get in the monsoon, they don't come back. You don't see this pattern return until the, <clears throat> the storm track starts to move south again in November. So red flag actually has a technical definition. It does. Do you know what it is? Um, it's just like a test, right? It's like, <laughs> well, uh, I, it's a wind in, I have speed, it in front of me. It's a wind speed in a relative humidity, right? Yeah, it's a, wind it's a threshold. Do you know how high the wind speed has to be? Uh, 34.9 knots. Wow, that's actually it's really? actually pretty close if you would have said miles per hour. No, oh. the definition is sustained winds of for, for three or more hours of sustained winds of 20 miles an hour or greater or gusting Gust. up to 35 miles an nice. hour. Nice, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And their relative humidity is less than uh, 15%. So th this, is, this is peak, not peak actually, uh, peak fire season uh, in the Southwest is July. Is it really? June and July, yeah. It actually evolves in Arizona. It's ramping up from April, May, June, and then it peaks in, in July. And so that's total acres? It's actually the, the frequency. Frequency, yeah. okay. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. so I, yeah, I suppose you're right. So then by July... When the monsoon comes, obviously, exactly. it's, it's, it's the it's lightning. 
so right now in the Southwest, I believe we've had we've had one large fire that's ongoing, the Sawmill Fire, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much the only large scale fire that's happened in the Southwest. Yeah, that's that's a big fire, largely in grasslands too. I don't believe we've had a, a large grassland fire in several years of, of this magnitude. The total acres burned in Arizona on average is about 200,000 since 1990. Uh, the median, however, it's, so it's a skewed distribution. The median is, is close to 100,000. Hmm. You know, we've had seasons that have burned. Well, the highest season was close to a million, a million acres. That was in 2011. Yeah. Uh, last year we had 158,000. The year before that, 200,000. That's in Arizona. New Mexico, which I was actually surprised to read this, actually experiences a higher number of fires and and more acres burned on average and in the median. Huh. Yeah, so close to 268, 269,000 acres burn on average in New Mexico, with the median being 183,000. And it's epic fire season was again in 2011. So that kept yeah. fire managers super busy that year. I remember that year. And another interesting trivia is that about half the fires are caused by humans and about half are caused by lightning, with the lightning probably starting later on in June, not not so much in May. Anything interesting or worth talking about with the, the sawmill fire? The surprise of how quickly that fire moved, I think is what is pretty remarkable, the forward rate of spread, both the wind and the weather and also the fuels that it was burning in, which was a lot of grasses that had really filled in post-monsoon season of last year. What are the impacts of that, like with the grasslands, you know, in subsequent seasons or subsequent years? I mean, did the grasses grow back differently? Some grasses really like fire, others don't. Fire overall for grasses can be good. It will be interesting to see how these places come back. And fire is a management tool for mm-hmm. grasslands. It's, you know, it's just that you, you want to have some control over it. And this was not one of those situations. It's really hard to control when you got 35 mile an hour gusts. Exactly. Exactly. It got a type one incident management team, which is the top type of team with the most resources. We'll be paying close attention to the fires as, as we progress along here. Yeah, the hope hope may is a little bit quieter, but I don't know. The well, ingredients if, if are climatology there. Climatology is uh yeah, exactly. any indication. If our that's, best guess is a historical climate, then we, we we can expect uh more frequent fires. But that that's not to say that they'll be bigger. That's right. I mean we can expect maybe the activity will continue to pick up, but hopefully we won't have this this kind of uh out of control ones. I guess they're all kind of out of control though. Transitioning here now to the black box of the the future. There's indications that El Nino may actually be on the horizon. It is the best estimate right now, even even if our ability to forecast future conditions is at, at a minimum. There's mm-hmm. still indications that we may expect uh, El Nino to return. From what I've seen, there's there's uh, uh, warm water in the subsurface of the ocean, which is sort of fueling that 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 forecast. It's interesting as I was reading a lot of the forecast discussions and looking at a lot of the models for El Nino for the next couple of months and you know watching the IRI forecast discussion that came out and the Enso blog that I thought it was a little bit more like kind of slam dunky maybe just a couple of weeks ago where the models really were starting to pick up on some signals and really lean towards an El Nino and it has really kind of gone in the tank over the last four weeks in particular. There's a lot of 
consternation now about whether there's enough there mm-hmm. to actually put an El Nino in motion and sustain an El Nino. And the dynamical models believe that there is, but are maybe bullish. And the statistical models are yawning at what they're seeing right now. And the other interesting factoid that you probably heard too is that there's only been one instance of a back-to-back-to-back El Nino, La Nina, El Nino since 1950. And that's part of why the statistical models are yawning because they just don't, there's just not a much precedent of the situation occurring. When I read that, it made me think, if that comes to play, does it undermine or throw into question sort of the dynamics of what we know about Given that we've had sort of the opposite signal recently and the the position of the the jet stream has been slightly north of what we would have expected last year and and that the system itself is acting in ways that we haven't seen before, I mean, how do we we sort this all out? To me, it's it's just humbling. The humility that we need to probably have with where we're at as far as seasonal forecasting and our understanding and so I think is increasing. I think we're also coming to terms with the fact that we have a very, very short period of record of events that we're trying to make analog forecasts out of or even just understand dynamics. And probably equally important is that the climate system is changing out from underneath us. So the analogs may not be as helpful as they are in the past because if you look across there, the climate change signal across the oceans is just, it's you, it's, you can't ignore it. And Ooh. it's a huge part of this, I think, well, right, stationarity. I, when we're looking at the seasonal forecast, the, the dynamical models seem to be a little bit more bullish on uh, warmer sea surface temperatures than the statistical models. But if, you know, which ones do we pay more attention to, particularly given the fact that, you know, the climate system is changing under our feet, like how representative are those statistical representations? I think it's fair. And I think it completely depends on the type of model and what the model is sort of queuing in on. The statistical models are probably conservative, and the dynamical models have this kind of momentary bias issue where whatever they see when they're being sort of initialized, they'll kind of carry forward, right? Which is what we've seen in the past is I think that they were queuing up some subsurface warm water in these Kelvin waves they're expecting to sort of move across. But if you look at the subsurface a temperature profile across the Pacific right now, it's not terribly impressive. And there's actually some cooling water that will continue to upwell in the Eastern Pacific. And so the timing isn't great. You want to start to now see these releases and movements of water across the West Pacific and get some reinforcing convection to try to start to drive the system more towards El Nino. It does not mean that it couldn't happen later in the season, but it's just like the pieces and parts that are together in sort of this April-May period. We are still in that predictability barrier zone. There's just too much noise in the system, I think, to sort out one way from the other, which is why I think you see some of the the much more conservative forecasts being a coin flip between El Nino and neutral at this point. Clarity should emerge by the time we get to June. This uncertainty is sort of reflected in the IRI and the Climate Prediction Center sort of joint joint forecast. Absolutely. If you, That's, if you, if you yeah. look at, they release El Nino, La Nina, ENSO forecasts twice a month in the in the early parts of the month and then in, in the middle month. In the early parts of the month, it's the statistical dynamical models, but also sort of the experts expert getting judgment. Getting tweaking it, yeah. Uh-huh. Whereas the the forecasts that are issued in the mid-month do not have the the expert judgment in it. You know, just looking at the, the most recent two forecasts, the early April ENSO forecasts, 
the probabilities for El Nino crest at uh, 50% in the fall and late summer in the fall. Whereas, you know, fast forward two weeks to the mid-April forecast and those El Nino probabilities crest at 70%. So I think that, you know, the forecasters are like, ah, the, the, the models aren't, uh, they're over-interpreting perhaps, or they're not picking up on the uh, on the fact that we uh, ha- historically haven't been as successful at this time of year at, at, at forecasting. So they're, they're a little bit more cautious. I think there is something though in here, even if we don't know if it's a El Nino or a, a neutral, it's exceedingly low that it would be another La Nina. Yeah, I think we're safe there in that part of it. <laughs> the thing that I just refuse to want to get too interested and excited about was, and I think this was a detriment to, to really understanding the last El Nino event, the subtle differences between where, when we talk about an El Nino actually happening, of whether or not it's a Central Pacific El Nino or it's an Eastern Pacific El Nino. And I think you've even brought it up last summer or last winter when we were trying to diagnose this. This is coming out in literature a little bit more. And now I'm trying to look at what some of the forecasts are actually saying about if this thing does turn into El Nino, it really has more of a Central Pacific look to it, not an Eastern Pacific one like the 97, 98 event. The interesting thing was is that coastal El Nino that was hammering South America would have been more of what we would have been calling an Eastern Pacific one. But as this one potentially evolves and moves forward, it takes on a much more Central Pacific look to it. Why do we care? It seems to be that that actually matters with the subsequent jet stream. It could even be part of the reason why we didn't see exactly the kind of impacts that we had expected to see last winter. It makes sense where the position of the uh, the greatest convection is. Absolutely. Right? If, Absolutely. The, if the atmosphere is sort of tied together, it sort of acts as a fluid, yep. where that position of convection is occurring should ultimately have an influence on downstream issues. Yep. When people are coming up with the impact model, so like the precipitation forecast, not the not the El Nino or not the ENSO forecast, but the, the impact uh, forecast, are they looking at the sea surface temperatures within the what's traditionally called the 3.4 region? Are they just averaging over this sort of box within the, the Pacific Ocean or are they taking more into consideration the sort of spatial patterns, you know? Some of the statistical methods won't. Some will, some won't, depending on how sophisticated they are. The dynamical models, though, should have the heating anomalies and the, the, the geography and the spatiality of them sorted out to produce the, the right impacts. And, and I haven't seen the paper yet, but I'm waiting for it is to try to have that really good deconstruction of what happened. I do have one in my bag I haven't read yet that I'll take a look at and I'll have you take a look at too. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit more, see if we can learn something from last last winter. It's specifically focused on last, it's the, it's, last um, winter? It's the, C, you know, the CPC and IRI and, and many other scientists doing the uh, diagnostic of the 2015-2016 El Nino. And it's, a, oh, that'll it's a, be interesting. a BAMS article that's in press right now. We could talk about that. Okay. Um, you know, I'm going to refrain from moving this discussion to talk about the monsoon. What do we have to say about Not much. What, what's going to happen in the monsoon? I just hope it rains somewhere. It will. You know what? I'll actually, I'll put money on that. It'll rain somewhere. We're going to get you on the record for, you, we've got to do our prediction again. Do we do that? We actually do that. I think right? I won. I think you probably did too. Yeah, I didn't pay, ever pay you for it. Did no, I? Still, did we ever pay you, you for the? You still owe me. You still owe me a couple beers. Well, give us the parting word. Mike. Uh, I, I, I'm putting you on the spot that here. That's really freaking me out. We got to get you some coffee. I got, apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm already thinking about the monsoon now. 
All right. Well, I, I actually can't wait for the monsoon. The, the worst time in the Southwest. I have mixed feelings about this I time, know. but the worst time. We can hang in there together. We'll be our own support network. Is, is, is May and June. I'm going to tell everybody, though, you're leaving for most of June anyway, well, so I'm not know. sure what you're what you're whining about. And, and what are you talking about? You're on you're yeah, on sabbatical. Right. Right. I'll Bas- just be hiding in. You basically hang out in your house and I've, like I've sip lemonade under during a blanket. the day. And then, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly sip lemonade. That's like, exactly hey, what I've been doing. Maybe I'll read this band. Maybe article. I'll be. Yeah, I was tough life. It up. Mike. Tough life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, thanks for that, Mike. I, I I learned something there. Okay. Good. Good. All right. So we will come back in a in another month and and update you all on recent weather and climate conditions here in the glorious desert of uh, Arizona and, and and New Mexico and and thinking more broadly as well. Cheers. See you, Zach. The Southwest Climate Podcast is a production of CLEMIS, which is part of NOAA's Regional Integrated Science and Assessment Program and is housed at the University of Arizona Institute of the Environment. Mike Crimmins is a principal investigator with CLEMIS, a professor of soil, water, and environmental science in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, and climate extension specialist with the University of Arizona Cooperative Extension. Zach Guido is a research scientist with the Institute of the Environment and UA program manager of the International Research and Applications Program. The podcast is edited and produced by Ben McMahon, research outreach and assessment specialist with Clemus. Should we begin without Ben? Is he really? <laughs> did he really start recording and just yeah. leave? It's <laughs> hilarious. We even got a little bit of the Arctic in. We did. We yeah. always talk about the tropics. We do. You know? We do. Should we talk about Australia next time? Let's try it.